and welcome back to the 231st episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a stellar show for you today. We're going to be talking about Wi-Fi 6, IBM open sourcing their power architecture, the latest in a BLE vulnerability, scary, scary thoughts about social credit ratings. I went to Microsoft. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. And we've got lots of news bits about Amazon, Nest, Fitbit, and a message from our sponsor, who is new this week. It's a pharaoh. And we're going to hear from our guest, who is Mark Webster from Adobe. We're going to be talking about using voice in enterprise systems. So think about bringing Madam A to your office, except not. All right. Let's kick this off with a message from one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is Simple Commands. Do you wish that you could do more automation and routines with your smart home devices? Simple Commands is a cloud-based service that not only allows you to access all of your smart devices in one place, but it also lets you use triggers and routines to customize and automate your smart home. All Simple Commands connected devices, groups, and routines can be run via Amazon Echo devices or Google Home voice commands, executed via an SMS message, executed via a Slack message, and much more. So sign up for an account online at www.simplecommands.com or download the app in your app store. Kevin, I think we're going to have to try that. Absolutely. All right. So let's kick this off. We have got big news on the Wi-Fi front this week. Qualcomm announced several Wi-Fi 6 compatible chips. And for everybody out there going, what the heck is Wi-Fi 6 and what happened to the ACAXBGNs? Well, a couple, like a year ago, the Wi-Fi Alliance said, hey, those 802.11, insert a letter here, it's just too confusing. So they <laughs> renamed it. So now we've got 5G on the cellular front and Wi-Fi 6 on the Wi-Fi front. And Wi-Fi 6 is for 802.11ax. The ax. The ax. And this isn't about speed. One, yes, it can help speed, but really what this is, is basically densification. It's getting more devices on your network and giving the router the capability to handle all these requests from all of these crazy smart home devices in your house. It sounds pretty awesome, right? Would that be because of the multi-user MIMO? It would. It's the multi-user, <laughs> multi-input, multi-output antenna structure. Multi ah! for the win. Yes. I want to call it Moo Mimo. Mimo? Mimo. Mimo. I, I can Mimo. see why they just call it Wi-Fi 6. <laughs> <laughs> Moo Mimo. That's it. That's what I'm calling it. Moo Mimo. Moo Mimo for all of us. So I, I'm being a bit silly here, but this is actually cool. So the more antennas you have, the more configurations that they can actually start signaling to each other on. And I'm not going to get into a lot of radio <laughs> radio math here. But that's a big part of the ability to handle more devices and also helps with speed. It's actually something that we've been doing for a while on the cellular side. We started doing it on the Wi-Fi side, AC slash Wi-Fi 5, but it's really complicated technology. What it also means, though, is that to get all of this super densification, the devices that are talking to your router, so both the router and the devices have to be 811 AX or Wi-Fi 6 compatible. Yeah. And that, of course, means new routers. Right. So Yay. We, we've actually got routers <laughs> coming out that are out right mm -hmm. now that are Wi-Fi 6 compatible. 
And the question, though, for anybody like myself, who's like, should I update? I would wait until you have Wi-Fi 6 compatible devices. So if you want, if you're in the market for a new router, yes, go with Wi-Fi 6 compatible. But if you're like me and you have like an awesome mesh router that you spent 500 bucks on not too long ago, I guess it was two or three years ago, you could probably wait. And I think we're going to start seeing Wi-Fi 6 compatible devices. We'll get a couple announcements for CES in 2020. But again, this is new technology. That means the chips are going to be expensive. So we all know how these devices are like, oh, we got to keep it under $100 or $150. They're not going to be shelling out for the fanciest Wi-Fi if they don't have to. And most of them won't have to. We can look and see if the Google stuff that's coming out in a couple of weeks is going to be Wi-Fi 6 compatible. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of computing products, like recently some new laptops and such with new Intel Comet, like processors, Ice Lake, et cetera. They're Wi-Fi 6 certified. But from an IoT standpoint, I mean, really, this is probably more unlike for video cameras and such. Yes. I mean, yeah, not, not things that just send small bits of data. Yeah, they can kind of, they could congest the network from a number of devices standpoint, but they don't congest it from a bandwidth standpoint. This deals with both. So right. what we're going to be seeing, and I'm actually talking to a bunch of people. So you'll see this in the newsletter, not this week, but next week. I'm talking to a bunch of smart home device makers about this. But what I have been reading and seeing from people is you have to have like more than 50 connected devices in your home network to notice a big difference between Wi-Fi 5 and Wi-Fi 6. So you should be getting there. I'm getting close. I'm close to that. But, you know, and these are Wi-Fi devices. So, you know, someone who's got a lot of hubs, I don't actually, I think I have like 38. I'm behind. I have 34. So the bottom line for people who are looking at this and going, ah, what do I do? I would say- nothing. Don't do anything yet. Don't do anything unless you are already shopping for a router. If you are, buy the Wi-Fi 6 router. You won't regret that. And that's our 411 on Wi-Fi 6. So let's talk about another wireless standard, Bluetooth, and the latest vulnerability. So this is the knob attacks. They stand for key negotiation of Bluetooth, which if you're like, what? It's basically... It's a vulnerability in the way Bluetooth is, the protocol is actually written. So it allows people to use keys that have a minimum length of one byte, and that can hold one character. So that's like a password like zero or D. Oh, you guessed my password. Ta-da! <laughs> it, this happens when the, the pairing process actually occurs, right? Yes. Yeah. So obviously having a single character or single byte password is bad. This happens in a very limited instance. It's during the pairing process. I wouldn't say it's a big concern. Like, I don't think it's something that somebody could easily exploit. Uh, I know a lot of websites wrote about this saying, don't use Bluetooth anymore, which was way over the top. That's just silly. But basically, it's like a, a man in the middle attack during the pairing process. So it's it's not a good thing. What do we do about this? Well, (laughs) (laughs) 
There's not much we can do. I, I do know that the Malware Bytes Labs blog post that writes extensively about this has a list of links from Apple, BlackBerry, Cisco, Google, Microsoft, and Red Hat. And those links are all for their particular mitigations. I don't know if any of those have actually been implemented yet because this just all happened about a week ago or so. You're going to want to just pay attention and look for updates or even hit these links just to, to keep on track of what these companies are doing about it. And the Bluetooth SIG said that it has fixed the vulnerability by updating the Bluetooth core specification to recommend the use of encryption keys with a minimum of seven bytes. But there's still going to be updates that need to happen. So. Yeah. And, and to be honest, if you've already paired, say, certain IoT devices to your this hub is, yeah, or whatever, this isn't it, it, you. it's not your, yeah, it, no impact because again, it happens at the pairing process. So if you have new devices that are Bluetooth based, Maybe you want to wait to pair them. I, again, I think it's a really low risk to, to actually try and pair these. For individuals, probably so. And I would say if you're in an enterprise setting and trying to do a mass pairing of something high value, maybe wait. wait. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe update, don't do it. <laughs> update the firmware when you bring the device out of the box and it's like, hey, there's a firmware update. Do you want to do this? Say yes. Please say yes. In scary news about the IoT, <laughs> Kevin read an article and got all kinds of crazy thoughts in his head, which I personally have had in my head for a while. So I'm glad that someone is, I don't know, in love with technology as you, Kevin, have also had this awakening. Yeah. I'm pretty open about my personal data and, and sharing it with who I feel are responsible companies. But we've talked about the China social credit score in the past. And if, for folks who haven't heard about that, that's where Basically, the government is using webcams, facial recognition, data from social networking services, payment apps, and so on, and literally assigning a, I'll call it a good citizen score, or maybe a bad citizen score based on what you do to create like a, a credit score, social credit score. So if you're seen jaywalking on a webcam, your score will get dinged in less than 30 minutes. You could have a fine for the jaywalk and have it even like taken out of your WhatsApp bank account, right? It's kind of crazy. And I don't think about it too much here because we're not China. However, a really good article from Mike Elgin over at Fast Company kind of got me thinking about this a little more because here in the US, some companies, private companies, tech companies are kind of gamifying scores for their users. And that got me concerned because not just because of what Mike brought up, but what he didn't bring up, because all of these gamifications that are happening today in the U.S. are happening outside of the home. And I thought, wow, there is tons of opportunity for these social credit gamification scores from the data in our smart homes. So I'm, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get too dystopian, too 1984-ish, but, you know, I shared my thoughts on a blog post and it has me rethinking my whole privacy. Aha. See, and this yes. is always something. I've always thought about this because as a journalist, I do worry about surveillance of not me as a journalist. I'm not reporting on anything particularly dodgy, but you know, lots of journalists do. They talk to sources that have legitimate fears for their lives from governments, for example. And they would never have this sort of stuff in their home because it's both easy to access from a government perspective, either like some nefarious hacking trick, but also something as simple as doing a subpoena for information from a doorbell camera company, which apparently can happen even if you don't opt into sharing your video. 
right? Right. With the whole ring working with the police, yes. And, and we've even seen some things subpoenaed, such as uh, wearable data, you know, to see if and somebody's heart rate was up and Madam A listening in before maybe a crime happened. But, I mean, we've got examples of this now with uh, auto insurance where I plugged in a device into my the ODB port of my car for 90 days to get a discount for safe driving. But now you can do it all the time. Let the company literally monitor all your driving to get a discount or to not get a discount. Um, you know, think of what you do in the privacy of your home. Maybe you sit around and drink heavily every night and all of a sudden, you know, you're looking for a job and that information was aggregated by somebody and it went to a potential employer and, hey, we're not interested. Don't call us. We'll call you. I mean, there's a lot of private, private data that could be, and I, I'm not saying it will be, I'm saying could be used against us if the surveillance state happens here like it happens or happened in China. Exactly. So are you going to at some point pull the plug because you think we have achieved a surveillance state or are you pulling the plug now? What is your takeaway? I think the best thing for me to do is probably just stop drinking heavily at night in front of the camera. Um, no. <laughs> excellent. excellent. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm not going to do anything yet. I, I This just raised my awareness and I haven't decided what to do yet. I have stopped sharing some information on social networks that I used to share all the time. Like I pretty much would share more than everything. It was ridiculous. Any place I would go, I'd say, here I am on Facebook. And I, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. And it's, a, and it's a very personal choice for each of us, obviously. But more concerning than what I'm going to do is what happens in the future is we kind of lose control, whereas the data is just taken from us. And at that point, it's too late in a sense. You know, is everybody going to dump all their smart home gear? I, I don't know. I mean, we'll let you know when we decide to dump ours. You should probably dump yours, though, like several episodes before we dump ours. <laughs> we're, we're terrible at that, especially before Kevin dumps his. In fact, the fact that you're thinking about this makes me think, oh, it might be. Mm -hmm. All right. I, last week after the show ran, I um, visited Microsoft because I now live in Seattle. So, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just pop on over and see what they have to talk to me about. And I took away two cool things I just wanted to briefly mention. I'm sure I'm going to write about it a little bit more. I got a deep dive on their digital twin strategy from Sam George, who is head of their IoT efforts. And Microsoft announced their digital twin stuff. I feel like they put it out last fall, and then it became generally available maybe around CES timeframe. And what this is... Now that I've seen it in action, what this is, is basically a framework that allows companies to create a digital twin. It starts with your building. So Microsoft started with building management stuff. And you create a framework for your building. And in it, you're going to add like your electrical systems, your safety systems, all the things running through your building. And then you're going to add the people who move through it. And so in Microsoft's world, a digital twin is basically the physical infrastructure, the electrical and IT infrastructure associated with a space or a device, and then adding to that the dynamic elements. So if it's a turbine, you know, maybe you're adding wind and weather as your dynamic elements. If it is a building, people are probably your most dynamic elements. So is it a, we'll call it a digital simulation of the physical space. And that way you could try to map things out as they happen and predict. Yes. Problems. Yeah. Okay. So the hard part about this isn't envisioning this, right? I mean, I've played the Sims. You've probably played the Sims. Uh, 
I think I played The Sims on DOS. Yes. Yeah, I'm yes. like, I had I had something when I was a kid. Uh, like one of the hard parts here is building the digital representation of what's in the physical world, because there's a lot of information in our buildings. Microsoft for the building portion have created a framework that makes it relatively easy to import a model of the physical structure, so the building, right, from CAD or some architecture, BIM, Building Information Management Program. So once you have that, then it allows you to assign roles to sensors or rooms, like this is a conference room. Its light should behave this way. It should only give this information. So it makes it easy to give that out. What I liked about this, or maybe like is too strong, but what I found fun about this is that sort of information, once you create it, you're creating a lot of potential for lock-in in terms of it's very valuable for Microsoft. If you can sign up for something like this and you build out your virtual infrastructure and you assign it all of this information, that is not something you probably want to change very often. But it's going to become increasingly important to your operations as we start like trying to understand everything around us, right? That's the promise of the Internet of Things. So I think this is pretty savvy on behalf of Microsoft, and I look forward to seeing what people do with it. Also, while I was there, I tried out the HoloLens, which actually I tried out the HoloLens 2, which is the second generation HoloLens. And there's some cool features about it. One, it's a lot more lightweight. Yay. I tried out the first one and it had this like massive thing in the middle of your head to like help support the massive weight. This is much more lightweight. It's a different design. It's much more comfortable to wear. And I can't recall if the original HoloLens had this or not, but the most, I won't say life-changing, but what I thought was really game-changing was the fact that they have cameras that measure where you're looking. So when you calibrate the machine, you follow this gem around, you follow something around on the imaginary screen in front of you and it tracks your eye movements. Later on, you can actually look at things to like click through, right? So instead, so your hands can be totally free. You're not even gesturing in this case. You're just using your attention, your eye, your vision. It's not your vision. It's your eyes moving to look at something. And that can actually advance to the next screen or that sort of thing. So did you walk on Mars? I didn't walk on Mars. I did the the playful learn how to use it demo. And that was a lot of fun. And it was a pretty intuitive user interface. And then I did a thing where I wired an airline pylon, which is the part of the airplane that holds the wheel to the airplane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I did the wiring as I might in a factory. And that was fun, I guess. I was, I was a little <laughs> frustrated. I was like, ah. Well, it, dem it, it demonstrates a key use case of, you know, uh, repairing machinery. You're on site. You don't have instructions that maybe, you know, the instructions are showing up for you to. That's exactly what happened. They, they build. Look at that. Microsoft builds these wizards for all of their clients and the wizards like basically walk you through. Like I have never done this. I didn't know what was going to happen. They should tie this in with the digital twins so you can walk through the uh, digital building. My goodness, Kevin, that is actually something that they have done. Oh, look at you. I did not know that. Anticipate they've created some products called spatial anchors. And I can't recall the other name of the product without looking at my notes. But I will be writing about this because I thought it was I thought it was an interesting user interface. It felt much more realistic and plausible to have AR in an environment 
using this particular tool. Not for right. like walking around every day. We're not there yet on that. But it did feel really reasonable to have in a manufacturing or some sort of setting like that. And and you hit the nail on the head because I think it's more beneficial that these are AR glasses, not VR glasses. Oh, yes. The AR is hugely important. And they redesigned it so you can just flip it up. So I can just be like doing my work. And then if I need to see something closer, I'm like, Ugh, screen, get out of my way. I can just flip it up and be like, oh, nice. So it it is a very, it's a good experience. They only last for about three hours. And I will tell you guys that I could not finish my demos. They had planned three demos for me. I could only do two. Hmm. And I think it was the the eye tracking is something you have to get used to. And I was putting a little too much focus onto it. And I, I felt a migraine coming on. So I'm not saying this causes migraines. I am saying that physiologically, I think we have to like, or I personally have to learn like how to maybe focus a little bit less. <laughs> well, and, and as far as the battery life, I mean, I think the immediate reaction would be, oh, just three hours. But I don't expect these to be worn all day long, eight hours a day. This is probably very use case focused when you need them. Right. And I think like from a training perspective, I was literally given no instruction. I just put this on my head and suddenly I'm I'm attaching these wires, right? This wasn't a hugely difficult job, I don't think. But after doing that once or twice, I'm pretty sure I could take the headset off and I would know how to attach the wires. <laughs> so for news bits, we can kick off with Amazon and Eero because Eero has a new limited network security service called Eero Secure. So you have the Eero and I think you do pay maybe $10 a month for Eero Plus? I do. Right. So you get um, a v VPN protection, one password and malware bytes antivirus. If you don't want all that, you can get Eero Secure for $3 a month, which is a big discount or $30 a year. That will get you parental controls, content filters, uh, some malware tools, spyware, phishing site protection, etc. So it's limited, but still useful and, and much more affordable at $3 a month. I don't, I don't know if it's something you would do since you're paying the 10 for the extra features or not. Well, we already have a one password. I actually don't pay. I don't use the extra features. So for me, it might make sense. Oh, but yes, I think so. I am debating whether or not I should just buy a Firewalla and just get rid of the subscription service altogether. But, sure. No uh, monthly fee at that point. It would work with any router. Exactly. So, Like your new Wi-Fi 6 router that you're going to buy. Oh, man. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> I know. I'll let y'all know when I've decided it's time. I bet it won't yeah. be till 2021. If I'm being realistic, I just, I don't see a need. Plus yep, my, my broadband connection is not, I mean, the speeds that they're talking about, I can't get. So anyway, back to gadgets. So Nest Hello package alerts are live. We talked about this. It basically, your doorbell can tell you when a package has been left on your doorstep. This is a algorithm that yeah. they implemented. You and I both have the Nest Hello doorbell. Well, I used to have it. Oh, that's right. You moved. I moved. Yeah. So I still have it. And I do not subscribe to Nest Aware, which I believe is $5 a month. But that is required for this. So you got to subscribe to get it. There's a couple, I don't want to say gotchas, but a couple limitations. Um, the package has to be set down within the doorbell's view, not just show up, appear in the view, but be set down and remain stationary for a short amount of time because they're using AI machine learning recognition of the packages. And it's not just going to show, you know, give you a notification if somebody walks up with a package. My Nest Hello doesn't like cover the whole space of my 
front patio. So I'm concerned, depending on where the package is left, if it would even work. Additionally, if you get small packages, it's not going to work because the package has to be 8 by 10 by 1. Woof. Yeah. That gets you those big envelopes. Yeah, yeah, and then boxes on by computers and such, but like if maybe the new Wi-Fi 6 router box is going to be smaller than that. <laughs> Not if it's a mesh and you've got many, many element or many mesh points, mesh points, access points. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about something I'm super excited about because I have, well, Fitbit devices. So two points. One, the Fitbit Versa 2 now will include Madam A. Which is good, but it's going to require your phone to be nearby. And... Fitbit is going to launch a new premium service with new health data information. And this is interesting to me because I, I think just a few shows ago, I was complaining, like we talked about, was it one of your watches, Kevin, that gives you? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It tells My Garmin data versus insights, yes. actionable insights. It tells you when you've had too much to do or not enough to do and not enough sleep or too much sleep. And it says, hey, today's a good day for you to go all out or maybe you take it easy today. Mm -hmm. So Fitbit's offering something possibly similar. We don't actually know because we don't have it yet, but it it will have contextual advice, um, giving you more information around like your sleep score and things like that. So that sounds promising. It's going to give you challenges and you'll get audio stuff from Daily Burn and yoga. Yay. And they also will have a health report, which I thought was interesting because I've been trying to show my doctor my, my Fitbit mm -hmm. data for years. And my doctor is always like, I do not need that. That's no. But the health report is going to be like, boom, here's a one page. Well, I don't know if it's one page, but here's a simple, easy to read report that gives you presumably useful data about someone. So not my heartbeat every day, but just like trends over time. Trends. Yeah. Like I've actually done this with my doctor by opening up one of the health apps and saying, you know, hey, here's my weight over time from my smart scale. Look at my resting heart rate has been going up. Like, you know, any concerns? Compare that with my blood pressure, please. I've never had a report. I've always had to like skim through the app and that's not ideal. No, doctors, it depends on your doctor if they'll even sit Yeah, my doctor's a techie, so he likes it. But I would but. expect nothing less for you. <laughs> that was part of the interview process, of there course. How do you feel yeah. about smart hmm. device data? Google or Microsoft? So well, Beatles versus Rolling Stones is always the first question, but then it's Google, Microsoft. Oh, I'm Rolling Stones. Should we not do this podcast anymore? I unfriend you. <laughs> so this service is going to cost you $10 a month or $80 a year, which feels a bit steep. Fitbit did actually launch a coaching service, I think it was last year, and it's $8 a month or 40 bucks a year. And if you go to premium, you're going to get access to that coaching service that they launched. So that may be worthwhile. I'm trying, you know, it feels a little pricey for me. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people who are uh, avid competitors in various sports and they have their own physical coaches, you know, that they talk to and they pay a good amount of money, $100, $150 a month at least. So for 10 bucks a month or something, eh, maybe, but I, I think it's more for your everyday people, not so much Olympic athletes. Yeah. And yeah, definitely not. They, they have people coaches, people coaches. Yeah. yeah. How quaint. We'll see. I mean, when it comes out, I'll probably give it a try. I'll, I'll spend the 10 bucks for a month or two and see what I think. The new Versa 2 will give you a three-month trial of the Fitbit Premium Service. The device itself costs two twenty nine ninety five, so it's in the upper price range for Fitbits. But and I don't want the Versa. Some... I'm a charge. Yeah. I'm a charge person myself. I've got a charge huh? three that I like. It's the Versa. You do you. 
You do you. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a lot of news for this week. I think it's time for maybe a question from one of our listeners. I think so. All right. So this is the IoT Podcast Hotline, where we listen to you guys and answer your questions. The IoT Podcast Hotline is sponsored by Afero, with the fifth largest IoT patent portfolio in the world. Afero provides a proven IoT platform that doesn't risk your brand. Afero customers have experienced as much as 80% reduction in time to market and 10x higher activation rates. You can learn more at afero.io. And if you want to call and leave a message for us, give us a call at 512-623-7424. Not only will we answer your question, maybe, you will also definitely be entered to win. And if you call before the end of August, so that is Saturday night at midnight Eastern time, you will be entered to win our Ecobee light switch. This is the Ecobee Switch Plus. It talks to Madam A or it's integrated with Madam A. It has a motion sensor. It's very cool. And so this week's questioner, Ed, who is interested in a smart water spigot, you are now entered to win that Ecobee. Yay! Nice. Let's hear from Ed. Hi, Stacey, Kevin. This is Ed from Louisville, Kentucky. And my question for you guys is I'm trying to find an item that will work on an outside spigot that also will connect with either Rink or Smart Things or even Madam A. I've got some plants outside that uh, I use a uh, drip irrigation system on and it runs right off the spigot rather than a, an actual, like, uh, sprinkler system. So just trying to find a device that'll do that. Your help would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. Oh, Ed. At first, I was sad when I heard this because about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, I spent a long time looking for this device. And the only one I found was like $120 or something ridiculously high. And I was like, nope. Or it didn't quite do what I wanted it to do. I think there was one out there that was only Bluetooth compatible. And I was like, nope, the point of this is that I want to do it when I'm, you know, in my house, in my bed. I don't know. I don't want to be next to it. But time is our friend in technology development cycles. So we now have found a device that will work for you. And it's not crazy expensive. It is about $52 on Amazon or $80 MSRP. This is the Orbit Beehive Smart Hose Faucet Timer that also comes with a Wi-Fi hub. It is compatible with Google, Madam A, and apparently they have a HomeKit certified version of this as well, if that matters to you. But you didn't mention that, so we're not worried about that. And even though I do not like hubs, this is a really small little hub it's you just plug it into an outlet and it's gosh it looks like a it looks like a bridge yeah it looks like a very small bridge i mean basically you know if you've got a bluetooth lock you probably have one of these to connect yeah, it via yeah. wi-fi so it's it's basically it sits in your plug and right. what this does is it has a timer that you can create it also lets you remotely turn on and off your spigot you're going to put this between your spigot and your hose which is very normal for this type of device, even the old school timer devices. But what it also does is it looks at your site conditions. Orbit makes sprinkler heads and all sorts of irrigation stuff, for lack of <laughs> I, I don't know what all this stuff is. There's there's a lot of irrigation stuff I don't know anything about. And what this does is it pulls in weather data and it actually can create a smart watering schedule for you if you want it to. You could manually turn this on or off 
perhaps through your phone, but if it's smart enough, you may not have to. This is only for North America. They do have international versions, but you have to be outside of North America to get it. So for all of you outside of the U.S., the Orbit brand is still the same. There may be a slightly different product number. So the product here is the Orbit 21004 Beehive Smart Hose Faucet Timer. Yay. I feel like we should also tell you that if you have an actual irrigation system or a sprinkler system, I've had a lot of luck with Rachio. It also works with Madam A and Google. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, that is also an option. But if you just want the hose thing, because that's where you're yeah. at in life, then this is a really reasonable way to do it. Right. The, the Rachio is going to be more expensive, but it is, we'll but it controls job, like many zones. Yeah. You, there's like an eight zone, a 16 zone. It's my, the Rachio is $250 for the 16 right. zone. And Orbit actually makes other things. So you can actually use this Wi-Fi hub and connect just the smart hose faucet that's only Bluetooth. So you could buy one of those for an additional, it's like roughly $40. And then voila. And you have an, another zone right there. Yes, you have a system. Mm. So, so Ed, we hope that helps you out. And it feels like it's about time for us to end this segment and hear from our sponsor, Stay tuned, because after that, we're going to be talking about voice in the enterprise with Mark Webster from Adobe. He's going to be talking about design considerations, use considerations, and why he does not believe that a digital assistant is, has to be synonymous with voice. It's going to be good. Hey, everyone. We are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is a pharaoh. And it's been a few months since I talked on the show with Joe Britt, who is co-founder and CEO of a pharaoh. We're going to have a series of conversations over the next few episodes. But first, I'm going to ask Joe to describe a pharaoh for our new listeners. Thanks, Stacey. It's really good to be back. Afero provides an IoT platform that really simplifies how you can connect anything to the internet. And we can help you build a business case to take you all the way through rollout, ongoing device management, and data analytics. Afero also happens to have the fifth largest patent portfolio in IoT globally around security, onboarding, provisioning, and device management. And our customers tell us Afero is the best choice for end user experience and developer productivity. So last time we spoke was about four to five months ago. I want to ask whether you see any new trends in the market. At a high level, we see the market segmenting into three big buckets, consumer IoT, enterprise IoT, and industrial IoT, with enterprise IoT really dictating a lot of the requirements for all the segments. And what this means is that issues like consistency across multiple devices and device types, response times measured in milliseconds, especially as you scale to millions of devices, managing many devices and device types from a single mobile application, and formalized data capture and data management processes become even more important than ever before. Can you tell me a little bit more about consistency and what that means for a manufacturer or retailer, for example? It is very common now for manufacturers and retailers to offer multiple connected devices and device types, and they sell them in the thousands or millions. Every time you add another device, that need for consistency becomes even more critical. You don't want your users to download yet another app. You don't want your developers to reinvent the wheel for another device type. And you don't want to worry about the quality of service that your end users get. Ease of use, security, response time, managing upgrades, in-app purchases, etc. Your business outcome depends on these things and a piecemeal approach just doesn't work. 
So how does a pharaoh solve this problem? The way to do all of that is by starting with a strong business case, an end-to-end platform approach, and really closely aligned partnerships. When you have multiple devices or device types, the platform has to tie them all together in a consistent way. The development model, backend infrastructure, the mobile app, AI and machine learning, and ongoing device fleet management must all work together. When needed, a pharaoh can also become your engineering team or an extension of it. Thank you, Joe. Next time, we'll delve a bit deeper into the enterprise IoT and how that's impacting IoT in general. But before you go, can you tell our listeners where to find out more about Afero? Afero.io slash go-big is the best place to start. And if you're a developer, please also take a look at developer.afero.io. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and today's guest is Mark Webster, who is Director of Product at Adobe. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So I am super excited to have you. We're going to be talking about voice in the enterprise. So to get started, how does Adobe think about voice in the enterprise and where it makes sense? So I think a good foundation is to think about what the term voice means and sort of how we refer to it. And so we at Adobe think of voice as a form of interaction, right? So how do I use my voice as a form of input? And how could speech and audio playback be part of output to improve digital experiences? Maybe it's an assistant, maybe it's not an assistant, but the starting point of how can we use this medium to make people's jobs in the enterprise better, right? So an obvious place for voice is when you think about the different environment that it's used in. It's really easy to think of the idea of somebody sitting at their desk, and it would be annoying to have somebody talking to a voice assistant all day. But, you know, imagine that you're a sales rep in that enterprise and part of your job is sitting at the desk. And then the other part of the job is, you know, driving to visit clients. In between all of that work, you're updating Salesforce. At your desk, the keyboard, the mouse, the screen is an excellent way to do all that stuff. If you're in the car, that's a very different thing. If you're on a mobile device where typing can be harder and slower, that's a different thing, right? So if I'm driving from customer to customer in my car and I have the ability to use a voice interface to update my Salesforce record while I'm driving, while all the information is fresh in my head, that's a really good example of where voice is really helpful in the same use case that it would be less helpful in the office. Given all of that context, Can you walk us through a day in the life of an enterprise worker who might be using voice and give a few examples of where they may use it, where it may fall down? Imagine you are a typical office worker, knowledge worker who has a job that for the most part takes place at a desk and there are conference rooms where you have meetings. So on the way to work, maybe you're in a car, maybe you live in a city and you're walking. And so you're checking your calendar, you're checking your email, before you get to work. And so something like AirPods and being able to to dig into that work and dig into your calendar is really helpful to know the context of what you're walking into. So then you walk into the office and you sit down at your desk and then you open up a screen and you check your email and you check the next meeting you're going to have. Then you go to a conference room. That conference room is already connected to your calendar. It would be really delightful to be able to just say, start the meeting and the meeting starts and you don't have to worry about dial-in numbers 
You don't need to worry about conferencing software throughout that meeting. It would be really helpful to be able to, quote unquote, take voice notes, to have a voice assistant in that place. So there are a bunch of startups who are, are building stuff in this space so that throughout the call, one of the participants is basically the voice assistant. So you could give to-dos, give follow-up action items to that voice assistant throughout the call. Uh, at the end of the call, you could hang up, go back to your desk. All of the stuff that you just recorded with the voice assistant would then be emailed to you or showing up in your productivity software. And so really thinking about where it makes sense to have voice and where it doesn't. Voice will not replace the screen, nor should it. We will continue to use keyboards and a mouse for a very, very long time. But there are places where there are just friction points where just being able to ask for something would be much faster than having to navigate through that experience. Got it. Buried in your answer is this, I think, really important concept, which is a lot of people, especially in the home side, conflate voice with a digital assistant. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I'd love for you to talk about your opinions on this. Absolutely. So I think in the voice ecosystem, the voice revolution, if you want to call it that, we're really early and we don't know what is going to be ultimately the way we interact with everything. Every digital medium usually has some transition period where you're kind of taking the old thing and putting it into a new thing. And so when we think of voice, we tend to think of conversational interfaces. We think of the metaphor of having a conversation with an assistant, but that's not going to be the right thing in every experience. A good example that we use all the time is if you think of a hospital room and if it had a voice interface in it, it would be really helpful for the patient to have perhaps a human-like voice assistant to interact with, to get information and, you know, turn on the TV. But if a nurse came in, a nurse would want to just fire off a bunch of key commands and quick notes to jot them down. You wouldn't want to have a conversation with a person. So there are going to be places where it's faster to use keywords and to think of voice more as a form of input than necessarily a conversation. And then there are other places where the conversation will make more sense. That is super tough. So, I mean, I think it's a great point, but I also think, oh my gosh, A, how is the computer going to differentiate between those two modes, conversational versus, I don't know, transactional mode? And then how is the user going to know which to use? The answer is something called design process. So there was a whole process for how we do good digital design that has existed for web and for mobile probably from the last 10 years is when we've seen sort of this move to the design first thinking. So a digital experience project will start with the design process as opposed to sort of design coming in at the end and making something you know look pretty. This is the way teams for whether it's a mobile app, whether it's a website, this is the way sort of the best teams create great digital experiences. What feels like it's been lacking and why Adobe is getting into this space is voice interfaces and voice assistants for the last couple of years, especially, have been primarily developer driven, right? And so all of the kinds of things that we do in design process, like identifying the persona, understanding onboarding, your first day experience is very different than the fifth time you interact with something. Taking all of these things that we've used in digital design and applying them to voice interfaces. So how do we think about who that user is, think about what it is they're trying to get done, think about what that onboarding or first day experience is going to be like, and then think about how that experience evolves over time. So something like enterprise software, enterprise software is usually optimized for utility, right? And a lot of times there'll be 
training that needs to come along with it. And there's onboarding to enterprise software. And so when you think of a voice experience that would live in the enterprise, that's probably going to have more onboarding and training that's needed to be part of that experience than say, just plugging in an Alexa device because of the use case and because of the optimization around utility, right? So the example we used of the sales rep who's using a voice interface to input that into Salesforce, that's not going to be something that they know how to do the first time they interact with it. They'll need to be onboarded onto that. And the reason that they'll go through onboarding is because like that's the job. It's tied to you know their day-to-day. And then once you go through that, you'll become much more productive on the other side. So I think the benefit that enterprise software has at certain times is that people are engaged to use it. There's a reason that they have to use that software versus perhaps other other consumer software. And there's a lot of touch points around onboarding, training, tutorials, so that you can actually sometimes get a little bit more friction up front in order to unlock the sort of massive productivity afterwards. I'm overwhelmed by this. So then how should we think about designing for different personas? Or how do we make that distinction in something that is not very, I mean, a voice interface is rich in some ways, but how do we tell the computer what mode we want it to be in? Is it based on the job or the person? I think it's a mix depending on the job and the person. I think it's even having the conversation of who is the persona and what is the job that they are trying to do, it almost feels sad to say, but like has kind of been lacking in the voice world so far. Like this is sort of core table stakes around digital design. And for the most part, we haven't done that much of this in voice assistants. And we're, we're seeing more of it. Like Alexa recently introduced the ability to change the speed at which Alexa speaks back to you, which is really helpful if you're just trying to get things done. And if you're new to it, you might want it slower. And so I think when I think about the enterprise, I think of who's the person and who's the job and what's the environment right? So something like in a conference room, that would probably be lighter touch, feel more conversational. The person who's going into it is only going to do a handful of things, but may say those things in like lots of different ways. Whereas if you were, you know, entering a Salesforce record, the way you like that person is going to know what they're doing, is willing to invest the time in onboarding into that stuff. So I think it's a mix. I think it's about understanding people and workflows. And in the world of sort of human-centered design, we talk about this all the time. And so it's really how do we bring human-centered design into the voice community, but also how do we bring voice interactions into digital design and think about it as another piece of our toolkit to include in experiences when it makes sense for the user and makes their job easier to do. Okay, so along with that, if we're accepting of the idea that voice is going to invade the enterprise or, you know, help make people more productive, however you want to say it, what are some of the things we need to start thinking about? I feel like security is one of those elements that's going to be really important. So I don't want like random reporter who's walking into a conference room for a meeting to be able to ask for our sales figures or (laughs) maybe a competitor. So How do we start thinking about using voice and securing voice? And what other things should we be thinking about outside of just security? A piece of it is authentication, right? So there are places where you wouldn't want to have sales figures and you wouldn't want to have them easily accessible. So you wouldn't want to have those accessible through, you know, a voice assistant that might sit in a conference room, right? But once you get through authentication, in the same way we do in in, in traditional interfaces, Right. So once you're past the wall and you understand who that user is, how do you open things up? So making sure that we're clear about 
what is the information we're sharing at different times? And do we know who the person is? And then what's the right environment, right? There are going to be places where being able to pull up sales information in a public setting, like a conference room is helpful. And then there are going to be places where we wouldn't want that information shared with other people in the office. So there is just sort of a lot of common sense pieces to it. There is authentication that's a part of this that I doubt we'll see sort of voice authentication. Voice is good at, there's a whole bunch of technology that's good at identifying who the user is out of a known set of people, but not necessarily to the point of using it as true authentication. So you can sort of ID people, but you can't authorize them. And so understanding the the balance of that tech of there are going to be places when interacting with a calendar, when it's okay to sort of ID somebody, but then there are going to be places where you're interacting with sales information where you really want to authorize that person. So a lot of it's common sense. And again, a lot of it is thinking about who that user is and, and where they are and what's sensitive. I think that's the main piece. And then also where voice is just an entry point, but it really makes sense to throw that data somewhere else, right? So do I ask for sales information and then it, it texts me a link or it appears on, you know, airdrops me on my laptop because looking at all the numbers will actually be way better than viewing them, but I don't want to have to navigate into six screens to get there, right? So that would be a place where voice input is super helpful, but really the output should be visual. And that gets kind of to this idea that we've been talking about the whole time, which is one, voice and voice assistants are two different things. And if we're talking about voice as a UI or even as an assistant, you're probably not going to keep your entire transaction or interaction in voice. You may have a screen, you may have gesture, there may be lots of different back and forths. And I'd love for you to talk about kind of how you see that future developing, because right now voice is almost synonymous with the digital assistant. So it feels like, well, Amazon will have an enterprise voice play and so will Microsoft through Cortana, but maybe it won't end up that way. There's a reason all these companies are spending billions of dollars on their voice initiatives. And the reason is because it gets you closer and closer to user intent, right? If Amazon could own shopping intent, like that's massively valuable. And so voice gives you the ability to get past a lot of friction in experiences and get closer to that user intent. So if you think about that piece of it, that voice is a way to either immediately deliver on someone's user intent and get closer to it, or be able to deliver information in either a better or more convenient way, right? Like those are the, the core blocks of it. And so the future of voice, again, is like it's a form of interaction and it's going to be multimodal. And there's going to be places where it makes sense. And there's going to be places where it's more convenient. And I think what we're seeing a lot now is people trying to jam stuff into voice assistants when it, A, probably shouldn't be a voice assistant. And B, maybe is helpful for a form of input, but is not helpful as a form of output, right? The whole history of like enterprise software is just essentially, uh, how do I know how to get to the thing that I need to get to? And so voice as an input gives this ability for us to get closer to what the user is actually trying to do. But there are going to be lots of places where the feedback, the, the output part of that, is better as a screen. It might be better as sort of a, a set of keywords or like reading back data versus like saying it in a sentence. And so we see this a lot right now of when a, a voice assistant repeats something back, like it's a conversation it's really hard to hold sort of more than two or three things in your head. But if you break those up a certain way, you can get people to understand much different pieces of information. A good example is like a phone number. So like we had this long digit that we needed people to understand 
Like, this is how you get in touch with other people, and this is what you need to input into a system. And so we put the first three in brackets, and then we put a dash after the second three. So it broke it up, made it more visual. And you almost can't even read a phone number to somebody without reading how that information is broken up. So there's lots of places to optimize for how we talk to things, to optimize for system input. And I think we'll see a lot more of that stuff unfold in the enterprise. And I think it will be different in different places. I think a trader will use a voice interface differently on a trading floor than somebody who is a trucker who's getting a bill of lading together before they pull up to a location, which is different than how an assistant will use it to book travel versus how we use it in a conference room. I don't think those things are all necessarily going to be the same. It'll be a function of how much training do people go through for those experiences and then sort of what is the benefit of going through that training. Got it. And I will say there seems to be a huge cognitive load associated with commanding something via voice and remembering specific voice commands. And maybe it's because I'm used to speaking to things normally all day long, so it's really hard to remember a specific syntax. But I do find it more difficult than figuring out where to move my mouse to open up an app, for example. But I would argue that that's because you've been using the mouse to move around to open up an app for a really long time. And And that may be the case. Yeah. The left side of the window means something versus the right side of the window. Although that is a gesture or a thing that I do that I only do in that one place. Whereas when I'm talking to something, I can talk to a person or I can talk to a computer and that may be more difficult. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I I do think a part of this is the user and I think part of it is generational to watch You know, my mom or grandparents use a computer is very different than how I use a computer. I have a five-year-old daughter who has grown up with voice interfaces. To watch her interact with one, she knows it's its own thing. She doesn't think it's a conversation with a person. She understands that, like, Alexa is its own thing with its own form of interaction. And she will say Alexa weather. She doesn't say, like, Alexa, this is the weather. And she knows weather is something you can say to it because she's heard us say it and she's heard it repeat back things when it says it. So the way she's used it is very different, right? So I think we're going to be in the middle and there's like an older generation who's going to have more trouble with things. Then there's a younger generation who will have different mental models and context they bring to it. Like, yeah, I think we all have the context of conversations with people that we're bringing to voice interfaces now, but I think that changes and it's already changing. You know, the, the voice study that Adobe put out a couple of weeks ago that I think you had covered on this show was that people are getting much happier with voice experiences and they're much less frustrating than they used to be. And so I think a part of that is they're getting better, but I think the other part is really people understanding like what they are and what they're capable of. Got it. I didn't even realize I could just say, hey, Madam A, weather, and that would happen. So kudos to your kid. Now I'm like, oh, I can I can stop having to say, what will the weather be in this place today? Okay. Well, Mark, I feel like I have learned a lot, and I appreciate you coming on the show this week. Absolutely. No, this was fun. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 